Harvard Divinity School. Psychedelics and Philosophy, Metaphysics and Meaning-Making in Psychedelia, November 6th, 2023. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jeffrey Bro, and I'm a graduate student here at Harvard Divinity School and a researcher with the Center for the Study of World Religions, where, along with Paul, I co-convene the Psychedelics Sacred and Subversive Reading Group. Last week, our group engaged the work of Pro Professor Haas Geller and Dr. Jostet Hughes, and to say that it sparked lively and excited discussion would be an understatement. We are grateful that they are both joining us here today and imagine that the conversation will be no less lively. Today's event is part of the very popular series on psychedelics and the future of religion, which is now in its third year. This series is part of the center's larger, ongoing, and evolving initiative called Transcendence and Transformation, or TNT for short. If you're interested in TNT, we'll put a link to the TNT page in the chat function. As always, the best way to stay abreast of what we're doing here at the center and its programming is to sign up for the weekly newsletter, which you can do on the center's landing page. After our introductory remarks, Paul and I will both disappear and turn the floor over to Dr. Joe Stitt Hughes, who will present for about 20 minutes, at which point I will briefly reappear to introduce Professor Hoskeller before again turning over the Zoom to her. Once both speakers have presented, we will all be back on the screen to discuss their works. With that, I will turn it over to Paul to introduce himself and today's panel. Hello, everyone. Welcome again. I'm Paul Gillis-Smith, grad student at Harvard Divinity School and researcher here at the Center for the Study of World Religions. It's been an absolute delight working with my comrade Jeffrey here on all things psychedelia at the center and beyond. Uh, and our reading group that Jeffrey mentioned is always a highlight of my week. It's such a gift for our own understanding and edification to have that multidisciplinary and collaborative space to work through these texts and then be able to engage the authors and editors with, uh, with all of those conversations front of mind. Our panelists today are two philosophers, Dr. Christina Hoskeller and Dr. Peter Schostet-Hughes. They will present a multi-perspectival hermeneutics of psychedelic occasioned experiences and discuss the question, how do we make sense of the myriad of experiences and extraordinary states of being that psychedelics can evoke through lenses grounded in philosophy. One might describe their work as a psychedelic humanities. While in conversation with the thoroughgoing scientific and medical discourse that dominates this psychedelic renaissance, the psychedelic humanities, as I see reflected in Dr. Hofskeller's and Dr. Shostet Hughes's research, is committed to the humanistic study of psychedelics, whether informed by the likes of Baruch Spinoza, Friedrich Nietzsche, the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, or commitment to the decolonial turn. It is our absolute delight to convene this forum and highlight the work of thought leaders in the psychedelic humanities, specifically at a time when Harvard and the Divinity School specifically has committed to the advancement of just such a psychedelic humanities. So without further ado, it is my honor to introduce Dr. Peter Shostet Hughes. Dr. Shostet Hughes is a philosopher of mind and an unabashed metaphysician, as well uh, as a research fellow and lecturer at Exeter University and co-organizer of the Philosophy and Psychedelics Exeter Research Group. Dr. Shostet Hughes is the author of two books on psychedelics and philosophy, Modes of Sentience, Psychedelics, Metaphysics, and Psychism, 
and Pneumonautics, Metaphysics, Metaethics, Psychedelics, uh, as well as the co-editor of Philosophy and Psychedelics, Frameworks for Exceptional Experience. His research uh, has primarily, primarily concerned the philosophies of Alfred North Whitehead, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Benedict Spinoza, and their relevance to the metaphysics and phenomenology of psychedelic experience. Dr. Shosted Hughes has uh, taught the Psychedelics and Philosophy course at the University of Exeter alongside Dr. Hoskeller, uh, which is likely the first of its kind. So Peter, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's uh, and, and Charles and Laurie and everyone. It's a real honor to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, so I've only got 20 minutes for almost 50 um, slides, so I'll just get on with it. So, yeah, um, my talk is called On the Need for Metaphysics and Psychedelic Therapy in Research. Um, the plan is this. I'm just going to give you the primary point, which I think is quite basic. And I, I'm going to sort of try to explain what metaphysics is. I'm going to give you examples of psychedelic metaphysical experiences and uh, then talk about the application of metaphysics to psychedelic therapy and beyond. And this talk is based on my um, paper on the need for metaphysics in psychedelic therapy and research, which came out um, a few months ago, uh, which is open access. Um, so you can all download it for free if you are so inclined. So what is the primary point here then? The primary point that I'm trying to make is this. Psych psychedelic induced metaphysical experiences will be more adequately comprehended and integrated with recourse to metaphysics. Almost a tautology, as we say in philosophy. Almost. Um, I, In my research, I realized that I was not the first person to um, come up with this idea, uh, this basic idea, really. Albert Hoffman, who synthesized LSD, um, he wrote in his autobiography from 1979, um, a quote, a type of meta-medicine, meta-psychology, is beginning to call upon the metaphysical element of people. Let us make this element a basic healing principle in therapeutic practice. So, um, yeah, so the, the paper generally is about applying metaphysics to psychedelic therapy primarily, um, but it could have social um, implications as well. Um, but we'll focus on the in therapy here. Um, so let's begin with asking the question, what is metaphysics? Well, the word metaphysics um, comes from Aristotle's book, The Metaphysics, which literally means after Aristotle's book, The Physics. It was named that by a later editor, probably Andronicus of Rhodes. Um, Aristotle used the word first philosophy, not metaphysics. Um, I point this out quite often, and the reason I wrote this paper really is because in our Exeter colloquium on psychedelic research, um, a lot of scientists and psychologists, psychiatrists were coming in talking about um, metaphysics slash supernaturalism slash spiritualism. And I thought, listen, now in philosophy, metaphysics has a quite a particular meaning. And um, we get that meaning from uh, initially Aristotle. Of course, metaphysics doesn't begin with Aristotle. He's talking about metaphysicians of the past, um, including his teacher Plato. Um, but anyway, in the metaphysics, you get these kind of questions. Um, so questions of being, ontology, uh, so questions of what the world is made of, the substance, as it were. So the physical, uh, the mental, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, you get questions about causation, mechanical causation, mental causation, uh, teleology, and so on. Um, of course, metaphysics has um, added, or the discipline of metaphysics has added to Aristotle's um, program, but, you know, more or less, um, there's an outline there in the book. Um, he also talks about form, you know, universal, space-time, the eternal, 
qualities, properties, relations, modality, what is possibility, what is actuality, what is necessity, and so on. And he even, interestingly, in the metaphysics speaks about deity. So he talks about in book Lambda, um, the prime mover, the uncaused cause, which Whitehead said was the uh, sort of first and last non-religious God in uh, Western thought. There's more than that. That's non-exhaustive. They're all interwoven as well, but you get a basic idea. Um, even more basic is this. So I've put this sort of ontology, the substance metaphysics or the metaphysics of mind into this uh, metaphysics matrix, which is a diagram on my paper. Um, you get five main columns there, physicalism, idealism, dualism, monism, the transcendent and some rows. Uh, the reason for that very basically is because I think that a lot of people who have not studied philosophy think there are merely two options, physicalism and dualism. But there are many others and many varieties that all interweave. Um, even more basic way of presenting this um, is thus. So um, let me just quickly go through these positions. Um, so we have the concepts mind and matter. Now, maybe they're the same thing, but at least we can differentiate them as concepts. Um, and we ask how they relate. Well, maybe there's some kind of pre-established harmony as we have with Leibniz or occasionalism, Malebranche, not very popular today. Um, Descartes um, in the modern world introduced this interactionist substance dualism um, where mind and matter are both separate substances that interact. Uh, many problems with that. Um, 20th century, we have now um, eliminativism. So consciousness doesn't really exist at all. It solves a lot of problems. Um, from Aldous Huxley's grandfather, Thomas Huxley, we get... Um, epiphenomenalism, which is the view that the brain creates the mind, but the mind has no power to affect the brain and body in return. Um, again, comes up with a lot of problems. Um, probably the dominant paradigm today is emergentism, at least in the cognitive sciences. And that's the view that the brain, uh, or rather the mind emerges from the brain. And you see the arrow going down. That sort of uh, indicates that there's also this need to believe in mental causation, partly for evolutionary reasons. Why did mentality evolve if it has no power whatsoever? Although that causes many, many problems, such as the exclusion problem. Um, in the mid 20th century, we had psychoneural identity theory, which is that the idea that the mind is the brain, not that the mind emerges from the brain, but it actually is the same thing. But there was a big problem with octopuses re regarding that that I can't get into anyway. So people moved on. Um, doing the rounds in the last, uh, well, again, returning to the do the rounds is panpsychism. I did my PhD on panpsychism. It's a view that uh, minds exist throughout all of nature, um, somewhat related to animism. Um, we have idealism from Berkeley, Kant, Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, um, which is the view that the mind, rather than the uh, brain or matter creating mind, is the other way around. Mind creates matter or projects the world of matter as we see it. And then there's neutral monism. Um, Bertrand Russell coined that term neutral monism, but what he meant then in the early 20th century is different from what it really means now. Um, we can take Spinoza as an example of a neutral monist. So mind and matter are both expressions of a neutral substance that's neither one or the other. And I'll return to Spinoza in a moment. Um, on top of that, we have the, uh, as well as mind and matter, we have uh, theories of the transcendent and many thinkers such as Whitehead, Santayana, Russell, early Russell at least, um, and so on, Gödel believe that you have, um, Roger Penrose and Karl Popper as well, I should say, believe that you have to have a transcendent element. So a transcendent, you know, um, realm, a sort of platonic realm to explain uh, the relations between mind and matter as well. Anyway, so there you just have a general menu of metaphysics of mind, um, which and we don't know all of those options are problematic and there are many other options as well. Um, even, you know, our definitions of mind and matter are very problematic. 
But nonetheless, there's no obvious solution. There's no obvious one answer to how mind and matter relate. Um, metaphysics is related to mysticism. Um, we have in metaphysics, we have then um, systematic intellectual metaphysics. So the grand schemes of Leibniz and Spinoza and so on. We have in universities today, analytic intellectual metaphysics, which is kind of a bitty study of like, you know, causation or identity or necessity and things like that, non-systematic. So we study metaphysics at university and elsewhere. Um, but I think you can also, I argue that you can also have an experiential metaphysics. In other words, you can um, you, you can experience this in one go. And, and some of that experiential metaphysics overlaps with classic reports of mysticism. William James, for example, writes in 1902, quote, in the nitrous oxide trance, we have a genuine metaphysical revelation. So it's this overlap that I'm interested in, the overlap between metaphysics and mysticism, not exactly the same thing, but some of it is. And then we have a third overlap with psychedelic experience. So not, I'm not saying at all that all psychedelic experience is mystical or metaphysical. Um, there are, you know, sometimes um, people take psychedelics to uh, get a different sort of uh, viewpoint of their body or to become better hunters or, or, or whatever. Um, and there's no neutral view, again, with metaphysics. So as Alfred North White had said, if you don't go into metaphysics, you assume an uncritical metaphysics. I don't think there's a default view. It's part of the ideology, the culture in which you find yourself. And it's no good, I argue, to say that, well, you know, we don't know the sort of um, the relationship between mind and matter yet, but, you know, maybe neuroscience will, because as J. Wan Kim, the great philosopher of mind, said, quote, making a running list of psychoneural correlations does not come anywhere near to gaining an explanation explanatory insight into why there are such correlations. So in other words, neural correlations of consciousness present rather than resolve the problem. So this is a metaphysical problem. And the mind-matter problem keeps the metaphysical options open for interpreting psychedelic experience. So let's say you have a, you take the psychedelics and you have some kind of pantheistic experience where God is nature. Um, you don't know, because we don't know the solution to the mind-matter problem, we don't know whether that is a delusion or veridical. Let me give you a few examples of psychedelic metaphysical experiences. Um, Benny Shannon, in this uh, seminal book, The Antipodes of the Mind, charting the phenomenology of the ayahuasca experience, writes this, quote, Overall, ayahuasca induces a comprehensive metaphysical view of things. I would characterize it as an idealistic monism with pantheistic overturns. Nice cocktail there. Reality is conceived as constituted by one non-material substance, which is identified as cosmic consciousness. Spinoza would accept them. Or a classic, a classic uh, pantheist insight from Alan Watts, the individual discovers himself to be one continuous process with God, with the universe. To those who have known it, it is as real and overwhelming as falling in love. This is an interesting one on panpsychism from a book, I don't know if, uh, not that well known, by Richard Ward called A Drug Taker's Notes from 1957. He's about taking LSD. Um, and interestingly, you know, this was, he, he wrote this before, there was a lot of literature on, you know, what to expect when one takes psychedelics. He writes this, I realized on 100 micrograms LSD that the whole universe is made up of things which have their own natures, relationships, significances, and that in some universal scale, each thing has its proper degree of awareness. Panpsychism, as I mentioned, is related to animism. Um, our good friend, Dr. Luis Eduardo Luna, for example, writes this, it's impossible to understand Amerindian animist culture without reference to these psychedelic plants. And that relationship between panpsychism, Western panpsychism, Amerindian animism, and psychedelic experience is something that I would like to explore further. Um, as well as those systematic theories, you have um, uh, analytic intellectual metaphysical 
revelations like um, about the memory past. That's a lot of therapies based on bringing back, you know, sort of making conscious lost memories and working with them again. Um, here's an example from Oliver Sacks' book, Hallucinations. Then my whole, this one, LSD, I believe. Then my whole life flashed in my mind from birth to the present with every detail that ever happened. Every feeling of thought, visual and emotional was there in an instant. Interestingly, Thomas de Quincey in his 1920s, 1820s book, Confessions of an English Opium Eater also writes uh, the same thing that, you know, lots of memories from his early childhood came back in exquisite detail. I think a very interesting philosophical thing with um, psychedelic experiences, not what I call novel qualia, qualia being colors, sounds, smells and so on. Yegwon Kim writes this. Why are there just these qualia in normal consciousness and not other possible ones? That remains a mystery. Why do we um, translate, as it were, electromagnetism? light into color um or or airwaves into sound you get synesthesia with psychedelics but also i think in my own experience there are qualia which cannot be categorized in any um normal sense like a color or sound something beyond it and then the question is well how what was the sort of ontological status of those qualia metaphysical entities feature a lot seems universal throughout every country little people um I won't read that one. That's a particularly grotesque one from Rick Strasm's study on DMT. Uh, nature connectedness, again, very common, it seems. Um, here's an extreme example from Paul Devereux saying he became one with a daffodil and felt a sort of exquisite, exquisite experience of light falling through his petals and so on. Um, and monism, neutral monism, Albert Hoffman, whom I mentioned, um, he begins the last chapter of his book, uh, LSD, My Problem Child, with this epigraph um, from Goethe, quote, what more can a person gain in life than that God nature reveals himself to him? Of course, Goethe there is referring to, with God nature, Spinoza, uh, the great thinker, Jewish-Dutch thinker of the 17th century, who was suppressed by his fellow Jews, excommunicated by his fellow Jews, and his books were banned by the church. Um, and people then dared, did not dare to speak about him until the pantheism controversy of the late 1700s, 100 years after his death. If you're interested in that, um, I've got a book, uh, not a book, a chapter in um, our book, the book I edited with Christina Housekeller, Philosophy and Psychedelics, on um, basically comparing Spinoza's ontology with uh, certain psychedelic phenomenology, especially 5-MeO-DMT uh, phenomenology. Okay, um, I've got a few minutes left, so let me just quickly talk about how we can apply this in practice. I should also say just this interesting thing. A lot of people accuse philosophers of living in sort of uh, ivory towers, not sort of applying to the world. But uh, I think with psychedelic research, you know, philosophy can be applied in practical ways. Anyway, uh, give me an example. So um, I'm going to talk about psychedelic therapy and i'll just quickly say that you know generally psychedelic therapy in the clinic um these days involves um a three phases so a preparatory session where um therapists get to know their their participant usually a man and a woman um and then there's the drug session itself where they take whatever psilocybin dmt whatever um and then there's the integrative phase at the end where um the therapist tries to integrate the experience into the person's life to make it um significant to them to make it therapeutic for them but unlike most other forms of therapy, psychedelic therapy often involves metaphysical experience. 
But psychotherapists, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, clinicians, and so on are not trained in metaphysics. It's not in their professional ambit yet. Maybe some are existential psychologists, for example, but generally they're not. So here's my conjecture from the paper. Um, offering a patient an additional and optional discussion of a scheme of metaphysical perspectives, uh, from that matrix, for example, uh, for integration may extend long-term benefits of psychedelic therapy and beyond. Why? Because um, let's say that there's certain evidence to show that certain experience, metaphysical experiences um, are the most therapeutic, usually of a monist variety. Um, it seems that 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 this is yeah this this has most effect, but um, when you return to as it were normal life, you might think after a few weeks, well, that was you know that you know God is nature. That was quite quite uh, interesting, uh, you know, experience, but probably complete rubbish, right? It's, it can't be true in any way. But by 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 telling um, participants and giving them a basic overview of like uh, pantheism, for example, uh, you might actually um, get them to reflect upon that experience and not to dismiss it as quickly, thereby um, extending long term benefits. That's a conjecture. It can be tested. And moreover, intellectual metaphysics can help explain experiential metaphysics and mystical experience. So I suppose, you know, at the moment we're, we're testing a lot of people's uh, um, psychedelic experiences with the MEQ, the mysticism questionnaires and so on. And that's, you know, somewhat useful. Um, it's very problematic. But, um, you know, mysticism stays at the level of mystery. Metaphysics goes to the level of explanation, or at least it seeks to explain experiences. Um, therefore, metaphysics, I argue, can be of use in integrating psychedelic-induced mystical and metaphysical experiences. This is the primary point. Again, psychedelic-induced metaphysical experiences would be more adequately comprehended and integrated with recourse to metaphysics. If you're interested in more, you can look at these, uh, take a look at these lovely books. Uh, and with that, I will stop and say thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sushta Hughes. That was a fascinating talk and appreciate you stepping out of the ivory tower and entering the Dayglo tower uh, to explain all of that to us. <laughs> it is now uh, my pleasure to introduce uh, Christina Hoskeller, um, who will speak for about 20 minutes as well. All right, so by way of introduction, Dr. Christina Hoskeller is a professor of philosophy and sociology at the University of Exeter, where she served as the co-organizer for the Philosophy and Psychedelics Exeter Research Group until 2020. For decades, Dr. Hoskeller published widely on processes of knowledge production in genetics, genomics, and stem cell research from a feminist ethics perspective. This rich background in the philosophy of science and medicine provided an on-ramp into the philosophy of psychedelics, specifically towards an analysis of psychedelics as novel tools of biomedicine. Dr. Hoskeller co-edited the recent volume, Philosophy and Psychedelics, Frameworks for Exceptional Experience, with Dr. Sostjet Hughes, and she is the primary author of Decolonization is a Metaphor Towards a Different Ethic, The Case from Psychedelic Studies. Dr. Hoskeller is also a co-editor for a forthcoming special issue on psychedelics in the journal Interdisciplinary Science Reviews, which she will tell us more about. Under Dr. Hoskeller's under Dr. Hoskeller's leadership, the Exeter Research Group has hosted two conferences and is going into the third year of an interdisciplinary psychedelic studies colloquium.
which has featured lectures on ketamine therapy, MDMA therapy, psychedelics and metaphysics, mysticism and ecology, and much more. And with that, Dr. Huskeller, the floor is yours. Is my sound on? Yes, thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you for this introduction. Um, so I've been working with Peter since 2019 on topics around philosophy and psychedelics. And I come from a slightly different background and tradition, having worked for a long time in philosophy of the new life sciences and in medical ethics. So I take a much more a sort of ethical point of view now at meaning making around psychedelic experiences, in particular looking at problematic ways in which I think uh, current clinical research and the medicalization of psychedelics actually pre-shape such experiences and offering at least some hints at alternative ways. Oh, wait a second, yeah. So looking from a critical theory perspective, which I will explain in a minute, at any topic basically means you look at the ways in which there are processes of power that actually shape a space. And we look at the psychedelic medicalization space and there is more than one dimension of power, but one clearly the one I've looked at in some depth is clinical trials and standardization as a necessary method. And this is what some of what I would be saying will build on, but also the utilization of psychedelic experiences of indigenous peoples and lands and underground communities. And that medicine itself is woven into a complex fabric of dominant institutions, including not least the predominant structures of political economy that define its parameters of action. So medicine doesn't necessarily always do what might from a medical point of view be best for a patient or a group of patients. There are many other parameters that are being considered. I will bring these aspects in, but first um, this article that Jeffrey just mentioned, uh, the writing's gone dark there where it should be read. <laughs> um, on decolonization as a metaphor. So this decolonial perspective is really important to my work and I'll try to develop this. There is a quite heavily cited literature on decolonization and one article in that states that one should never ever use decolonization as a metaphor. In our paper, we have argued that quite on the contrary, taking a decolonial perspective that aims to break open the borders between things that are usually fenced off. Um, namely, in the case of coloniality, the uh, settlers and the dispossessed or people of color and white people or men and women or culture and nature. These sort of dualisms of colonial thought as uh, the philosopher Val Plumwood, for instance, elaborated in the 1990s, are uh, actually part of arguing that decolonization should not be used metaph metaphorically because it supposes there is a literal use. And if we assume there is a literal use, then we take a method from the epistemic playbook of colonization and say that there is a particular way of colonization, such as a North American form of colonization, settler colonialism, that actually is the right one for which decolonization should be applied and not for other things. When we look at the medicalization, and I mean 
the ongoing colonial structures within the medicalization of psychedelics, then we see that actually these processes take on new forms and we cut off a whole critical perspective if we disallow the use of the word colonization for that. So if we say there is colonization happening in the psychedelic arena, what does it mean? Well, it's quite conventional in a way. So colonized objects are things such as psychoactive plants, rare animals, indigenous knowledges, indigenous rituals and practices, indigenous peoples and persons, but also human minds and experiences. This is where the metaphysical is really critical and the main focus of my talk today. And of course, the hopes and needs of people who might be desperate and in mental distress. What are the methods of this colonization? Well, the conventional ones, extraction and appropriation, adaptation, synthetic reproduction, marketization and control of profits. Some more on this in a minute. But when we think about here in this talk, in particular at internal colonization, what is the discourse here? And I thank very much Luis Eduardo Luna for allowing me to use uh, his fantastic images of Pablo Amaringo and his group of painters on some of my slides. So psychological and internal colonization, what could that mean? It's the question of which kinds of experiences are legitimate in our Western culture, psychedelic experiences uh, are not legitimate. They are extraordinary. But on the other hand, we do have therapeutic party and religious uses of such experience. But in those, they are not a self-expansion through expanded consciousness, but in a particular context within which they aim to serve. So whilst we say that uh, psychedelics are illegal, I would contest that this is actually the case. I think we have three spaces in which they have been used for decades um, and are at least semi-legitimized, semi-legal, and that is the clinical space, the party use and rapes, and the religious uses for psychedelic religions, such as the Santa Daime. But in each of these spaces, of course, there is a specific already given role for the psychedelic experience, and that is to cure yourself from a mental uh, ill state of ill health, to actually have an extraordinary experience for a fantastic weekend with people where you're all in unison and then get back into your normal life afterwards. And the religious use very similar to this, but within the context of a whole narrative of religious belief. So can psychiatry or psychology include the fullness of psychedelic experiences without distorting them? And this is what I've been looking at in these clinical trials. And is it right? that we actually restrict access to such experiences. My background in theory, I will briefly introduce here in just a couple of slides. This will be very rough and ready, but I'll try anyway. So thinking with key concepts from, the, uh, from critical theory as developed in the Frankfurt School, foci of this theory are in terms of epistemology, ontology, and ethics that on the one hand in epistemology we think in constellations, not in linear causalities. So this is a critical approach against instrumental reasoning, the use of reason to just serve particular purposes that are material purposes. It is a approach that argues against 
and tries to present a different ontology that is not reifying, that doesn't turn everything into things, goods, or exemplars, and argues against the commodification of everything and what is called also substance fetishism. And in ethics, it is really against alienation. Describing the state of alienation, contemporary science puts human people in. And that is widely recognized in psychology as one of the main causes of mental distress. Um, so alienation also through the culture industry and through so many offers we have to actually even in our spare time, not find ways to truly be with ourselves. It is a method of critique that aims at criticizing the social order that is focused on possession and control. And one quote from one of the leading theorists in this, that is Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno, they write in the dialectic of enlightenment that representation about science, they write this, or you should have said that, about science they write, representation gives away to universal fungibility. An atom is smashed not as a representative, but as a specimen of matter. And the rabbit suffering the torment of the laboratory is seen not as a representative, but mistakenly as a mere exemplar. Because in functional science, the scientific object is petrified, whereas the rigid ritual of former times appears supple in its substitution of one thing for another. And with the, here they talk about magic. Magic like science. So magic here is not radically different from science. Science is a different form of magic. Magic like science is concerned with ends, but it pursues them through mimesis. That means through sort of trying to imitate, not through an increasing distance from the object. It certainly is not founded on the omnipotence of thought. So the critique here is that the scientific approach turns things into exemplars and very much distances itself as something radically different from that which it studies, which in psychedelic clinical practice I will say and argue here is a problem. So in terms of psychedelic knowledges, I have certain thoughts I'll defend here that the war against drugs is harmful and for many psychedelics unjustifiable. I think that is relatively widely been argued and that we have these semi-legalized spaces. I said earlier, the clinics, the churches and the parties. But science, however, limits and manipulates psychedelic experiences. And I will show this by giving an example from music. And that generally psychedelic experiences, these kinds of experiences are deemed as dangerous in and for maintaining particular power structures within Western civilization. Then there is a question, and I've done a little project with a student last year on connectedness and psychedelic experiences of nature and the context within which we actually can change the way we relate to the world through psychedelic experiences and what matters us. Give an example from that, which provides then evidence against alienation, but in a form in which psychedelic experiences are not in that same way instrumentalized and woven into a capitalizing fabric as medicine is prone to make them. So I'll end with a critique uh, of prepackaged meaning making in psychedelics. So here's the three spaces. I think I've already explained this. We have the clinic to cure mental illness. That's the purpose to make people feel or be more normal. 
we have the party as an occasional, very limited and time-framed experience of self-abandon in which you're not supposed to radically change yourself. You're just going off into that and back out. And in a church, you have a shared community and rituals and ecstatic transcendence, but as a part of our life that is left to that uh, um, bordered off from the everyday work environment and life environment we are in. Now, looking at clinical colonization, psychedelics are sort of in between clinical trial practices and these practices of scientific extraction within these frameworks of the medical pharmaceutical industrial complex. And of course, drug development and business decisions that are shaped by technocratic demands of creating scientific a scientific evidence base to show efficacy and cost effectiveness of these new treatments. That means that we use methods of diagnosing people, admitting them to a clinical trial, and then they experience the psychedelic trip in a situation such as depicted here. This is from a clinical trial report. There are, could have chosen many, this is one. Um, in which it's clearly stated during the sessions, participants were instructed to lie on a couch in a living room-like environment and facilitators encouraged participants to focus their attention inward and stay with any experience that arose. To enhance inward reflection, music was played and participants were instructed to wear eye shades and headphones. So it's you with your mind. These music, an example of this, way of control that I'm talking about here is the music playlist. And uh, um, the uh, Johns Hopkins playlist page states, for the onset, the best music is unfolding and has a dependable structure. So it is a net of reassurance almost and of leadership. Let me pronounce this word again, leadership. So the music is there to guide people through their trip, Bill Richard says. And in order to keep participants inside the experience, there's a music chosen, for instance, that has uh, very music, little music that has English text. English text, so interesting, as if not other people would speak other languages and understood other texts, but that aside. So this playlist is very conservative, classical music, mostly um, a lot of sort of death music, <laughs> very sad in some ways, quite, quite a baffling music list that contains none. Let me just remark on this, none of the music from the 60s and 70s that was developed in the context of consuming psychedelic drugs. This is music from a different space. Um, Kaylin and colleagues have done a study with people coming out of clinical psychedelic trials and asked them about their music experiences. It's a very small number of people, 19, so this is not a big number study, but it was still interesting to look at what these participants wrote about their music experience and that 30% of them said they felt the music was misguiding them, that there was a mismatch between the music and how they were feeling in their experience. And that some of them even said that the music felt intrusive, that they were being unable to positively influence a challenging experience and giving a sense of being manipulated. So if this is the case that clinical science actually 
is has a way of structuring the experience and the metaphysics questionnaires of course do that too let me mention that uh, jeff and paul together wrote a really nice article for this special issue of interdisciplinary science reviews that is coming out this month on critiquing in detail these metaphysics uh, and these uh, mystical experiences questionnaires so if psychedelic experiences in the clinic is guided what does this mean there have been people in the field who have been trying to write something like a manifesto for embracing the weirdness of psychedelics, not putting it in a corset in which we can sort of make sense of it in that uh, way in which science inevitably must sort of present itself to count as science proper. But they want to sort of include what they call the mystical unscientific side of psychedelic experiences and that is really striking that the mystical and the unscientific are aligned here um, and they look at the way in which systematic adverse uh, adverse events in clinical trials are not well reported and all the shortcomings these clinical trials have so there is within the clinical community quite a lot of resistance or reluctance to actually use the strict protocols of control clinical trials for psychedelic, for bringing psychedelics into the into the uh, treatment spectrum of psychology, yet um, it's really difficult to do that, and that's partly because you try to really uh, hit some, uh, yeah, to, to square a circle. I do think one does try to square a circle with using this in science, but what does this mean for the ethics? And there's an interesting aspect for our topic today, and that is connectedness. If metaphysical experiences, as Peter said already, or mystical experiences even much more strongly and narrowly have something to do with not feeling as a singularity, but feeling connected, clearly there are at least three different ways in which we could look at connectedness. So there is a sort of, cosmic or transpersonal connectedness, there is a social or interpersonal connectedness, and then there is what we call, just for brevity, nature connectedness. And my focus here will now be on nature connectedness, even though for many people, probably the cosmic or transpersonal connectedness experience might be in the foreground, but I think Peter's covered this quite well in his talk. So um, I just want to list here cosmic experiences includes things like oceanic feeling mystical experiences feeling one with the cosmos the five meo dmt experience peter mentioned self-loss or dissociation which are also clinical terms in psychiatry indicating that something is really wrong um, then there is the second social and interpersonal connectedness where we could look at things like indigenous uses of psychedelics that are usually in a group context um, the way in which non-official use in either the clinic or on the rave or in the church is actually everyday use is with friends or in retreats and that is in groups. That people are creating communities of mutual care in uh, extraordinary experience situations. Um, and then of course, on this connectedness, one condition for such experiences of connectedness is that you actually have a somewhat intact community and there is some reporting, increasing reporting on issues of sexual, gender, racial and other forms of violence and hostilities that happen in some spaces of groups. Um, 
and of course most likely but not only by far not only uh, in the underground spaces but also in the official spaces so where a certain sociali sociality already needs to be friendly in order for connectedness to be an amplified positive experiences so now finally to nature relatedness Nature relatedness in psychology is something like a measure for the connection to nature. In philosophy, nature relatedness is linked often to environmentally and responsible behavior, to what some call an ecological identity, which includes the self, humans, non-humans, and entire ecosystems. Nature in that sense in philosophy also is often seen as something chaotic, meaning many different things, and many different meanings of what people mean when they say nature. But Castri writes that culturally specific representations about nature govern our understanding of the natural world and how we behave toward it. The meaning of natural ranges from untamed wilderness to a single plant in a clinical treatment room where you might undergo a psychedelic experience. Ketna has been written about with colleagues on a project they did uh, in From Egoism to Ecoism. Psychedelics increase nature relatedness in a state mediated and context dependent manner where they say our primary hypothesis of increased nature relatedness following a psychedelic experience was confirmed, providing the first empirical evidence for a causative role of psychedelic use in the enhancement of nature relatedness in a large sample of healthy participants. This represents an important advancement on the correlative association between, observed between the amount of lifetime psychedelic use and nature relatedness in previous studies. So what happens in this clinical environment? Um, can we argue, as I have, that actually alienation is uh, as, as being an existential condition of contemporary modern society? is experienced in clinical psychedelic experiences where there is such a thing as manipulation of the self and where the outside world is completely irrelevant, where people lie with headphones and eye shades and listen to a music list that somebody else has concocted according to how they think your psychedelic trip should go. So where this attention is directed only inwards for a clinical pers uh, pursuit, this might be more effective. But it also means when we think about nature relatedness, that what you actually experience as nature relatedness, not an actual nature, but an imagined nature, there is no physical or sensual encounter with nature, not touching or smelling or seeing things differently like famously Huxley did with a rose. So it's an imaginary connectedness. And I wonder as an ethicist, what is the ethical importance when actually something that is supposed to be a life-changing quality of experience is something that just happens with the stuff that's already in your head. Um, so this question of the experience, the sensual, the touch, the, uh, is made a point in Herbert Marcuse's essay on liberation where he talks about psychedelics and he says that our contemporary society needs something like a revolution in perception which will accompany the material and intellectual reconstruction of society, creating a new aesthetic environment. Awareness of the need for such a revolution in perception for a new sensorium is perhaps the kernel of truth in the psychedelic search. 
So what does this mean when when actually outside but not encountering any outside is a nature connectedness you experience based on a playlist and in a sort of very closed up setting is what is the nature that you encounter there? Do we not need multisensory encounters with what is outside, not just what is already somehow inside our minds? So in this project I did with Cordelia Marcus, she was interviewing a, a group of students who were using psilocybin and were reporting about um, or mushrooms rather, their mushroom consumption and experiences indoors and outdoors. And an interesting finding from this was that it really makes a difference to these very small numbers. Again, I think it was 14 students. Um, but there was an agreement that your ethical attitude can be changed through an outdoor experience. So from Cyril, he was lying in a field when insects began to crawl all over him. He contemplated panicking because of his fear of spiders. But then he thought, I'm in their home. I'm lying in their home. It felt like that neural pathway was sort of seared into existence during his trip lying uh, in the green. So this changed, he says, his experience and it led him to contribute, to continue to treat bugs with respect, not only during his trip, but also since then. And he says, I don't kill insects anymore. Cyril had direct physical encounter with insects during his trip, which he attributes to his changed thinking and behavior. There is another example I want to give from Luis Eduardo in his text, The Ethnopharmacology of Ayahuasca, where he says that when he did field work, I just read for time's reason, only the right side of this, while doing field work in Santa Rosa de Pirocacha, a Shipibut settlement by the Ucayali River. I asked Don Basilio Gordon, a shaman, about the plants he used to heal his patients. He said that it is enough to know the song of the plants to be able to cure. The plants are needed only if you do not know their song. So there's something about interconnectedness and nature connectedness and the importance that is given to the psychedelic substance in our current approach to them that is seriously challenged here. Maybe we just forgot the song or we've never learned the song of the plants, but I doubt that sitting in a chair with headphones and eye shades, you'll actually ever learn a song of any plant. So alienation, psychedelics and connectedness then play out in such a way that actually what we need is create self-chosen practices other than constructed environments if we want to have something like self-realization and a different respect for nature and other life. We should aim, therefore, for a decriminalization to enable new ways of connectedness and ethics of care. Such an ethics of interpersonal care might include within the psychedelic space that we encounter now and within the medicalization, and thinking about the personal space and time people need for interpreting their experience for making the meaning of what it was that they actually experienced, not sharing it right after or filling out preset questionnaires, that we might have to give up playlists, eye shades, and the enforced passivity of that clinical setting in order to enable embodied sensual and active experiences. Also this question of engaging with others and how engaging with others, people's plants and animals, then there is a question of the colonization of substances and the non-utilization of specific ends, especially the question, and I come to this with my last slide, 
the ethics of psychedelic studies could then include for us as researchers that we need to be considerate of the risks of appropriation, of the appropriation of participants' experiences, not least by recording them in big files somewhere for letter use, and asking them to report, even if it is in the form of questionnaires, that we need to search consensually for practices that respect contributions to clinical applications from people's knowledge of plants and animals that are not currently given their due recognition for that, establishing methods of fair compensation, establishing methods of sustainable substance production, and providing users with the freedom to find their own paths based on sound knowledge, unadulterated by profit interests. There might even be the perspective of saying that one refuses to partake in research that is not uh, decolonizing in that sense, that in research that is colonizing. Thank you. Um, I think just taking a, a point of moderator privilege to ask a, a first question of my own. This is a question for both um, you, Peter, and Christina, for both speakers. I'm One of the things that I loved about your talks and the work generally is the way in which these philosophical ideas are really connected to the practical and the pragmatic. And I think in both of your talks here today, we saw the way in which religion and the spiritual and the mystical, these ideas have been absorbed into the clinical use of psychedelics. And what I'm sort of interested in asking you both about is, is sort of the, almost the inverse. What can we take from the ideas you shared today into our thinking about religious use? So perhaps Peter, for you, what is the benefit of thinking about the metaphysical when folks are using or constructing traditions around psychedelics spiritually? And for, for you, Dr. Hoskeller, for this ethics of interpersonal care that you were getting to at the end, could you maybe explain even more about how you would see that functioning in religious traditions that are using psychedelics, whether they be indigenous or new? I guess I'll start then. Um, yeah, well, uh, I think um, I think one thing that maybe um, puts people off psychedelic experience and research, just exploring it generally is um, associations with any kind of um, not established religion, but sort of new age religion, spirituality, things like this, you know, or theisms even to a certain extent. And um, I think what metaphysics offers is kind of like, I don't want to say halfway house because it sounds negative, but um, some kind of uh, bridge um, between the secular and this kind of exceptional experience, you know, that is not necessarily off-putting to you know, number of physicalist scientists, for example, in the field and so on. Um, but at the same time, of course, you know, it's, um, you know, from a religious point of view, you know, metaphysics was the handmaiden of theology for centuries, if not millennia, and uh, they're, they're deeply intertwined, you know, like Sp I mentioned Spinoza then again. So his pantheism, of course, can be studied in religion, but it can also be studied in um, in secular philosophy. In fact, um, Ernst, what was it called? Um, Ernst Haeckel, who uh, coined the term ecology, the great artist, but also the sort of the person who brought Darwin Darwinism to Germany, um, he tried to make Spinozism the basis, the sort of metaphysical foundation of science today. Um, he was unsuccessful, but um, nonetheless, um, it's a, it's a, it's possible, I think. And I think psychedelic experiences um, not only can be, you know, can be look, looked at in that way, but um, but that way also can make sense of those experiences, can make sense of them, as can all the other uh, in those many, 
in that menu of mine. So, um, yeah, so I suppose my ultimate answer is um, I think that metaphysics offers a kind of neutral perspective on these experiences, which doesn't have to be religious, but doesn't have to be materialistic either. I mean, my answer to this question, how could or should or what do I have to say about psychedelics being used in religious spaces? I mean, I think we've, there's a lot of defining to do first. Um, first thing is what what would what do you mean with religious when you say traditional or indigenous or i would i would be reluctant i would like to keep the word religion for the big religions we know and some of these sort of subgroups that are sort of split that are sort of splinter groups that are very religious splinter christian splinter groups such as the santa daime i mean they are not new religions they are christian religions that use psychedelics um, I, I mean, I have some reservations against, not against people having rituals around psychedelics. I think that is very important for most people to have some forms of rituals and because psychedelics should be taken if experienced in groups mostly, that is actually almost inevitable and a very healthy thing to have. Whereas, and religions, our big religions at least have always used all sorts of substances and techniques to make feel people feel elevated or part of something very special. Whether that is the incense, whether that is the, the music and the organ, the space and its hugeness in a cathedral, we know. I mean, this way in which uh, religions play <laughs> with emotion to actually make people feel in a certain way. Uh, psychedelics maybe are just one element of this and I'm not sure it is helpful to see psychedelic experience as so extraordinary. We can have psychedelic experiences, maybe they are on a spectrum from things to dreams to sort of ex intense art experiences to uh, the ways in which one can have trips of very different intensity, which people who have experienced quite well seem to know how to manage, how much of what they take for what. So the extraordinariness, if you can have psychedelic experiences through breath work, there is a way in which we might need to give up this radical binary separation between the normal state of mind and the extraordinary psychedelic state of mind. I think that's a fiction. And this is what we can probably learn most easily from Latin American culture, whether that is its literature or its indigenous people's practices and epistemologies. So in that sense, I think religion uses whatever they can they, they want to use. That there's nothing new in that and nothing I would particularly want to problematize. Um, on the other hand, I think we should think about the ways in which we create the extraordinary as so extraordinary and whether we shouldn't maybe tone this down a little to actually think more constructively about our being in the world and how we can translate from one state to another. Maybe this isn't, these boundaries are not helpful. If, if I could follow up with a question for both of you as well, do you, each of you provide a sort of set of ideal futures for what uh, psychedelic clinical therapy and research might look like. Peter, for the introduction of a metaphysical uh, language and knowledge for clinicians. Um, 
and Christina for you know a, a entirely radical reform of uh, the the view of the subject in the research as well as potentially new settings. Um, a, a, a sort of a, a set a set of critiques and possibilities for the future. I'm curious what you see as the potential for for any of this actually happening. Have you seen any of this movement in your own life? Have you witnessed a sort of uptake of uh, psychedelic metaphysical integration? Peter, you mentioned the existential psychotherapy as one sort of mode that has a, a metaphysical edge to it. Um, Christina, have you seen any of these reforms, um, some rather rather radical in relation to how we see a lot of the research being done? What's what's what is your view on the future? I mean, the anti-psychiatry has tried, and I'm on a par with some of this, to actually critique very much the way in which we see the problems for somebody being unwell in their state of mind, in their mind, rather than in the world we all have to live with. Yeah? Um, and the way in which, which uh, something I find quite upsetting about some psychedelic therapy now, especially when we talk about the more bigger business developments recently, is the question that there might be so and so many tens of thousands of cases of PTSD in 2050 or 2070, all of which can miraculously be cured with a particular psychedelic treatment. Uh, PTSD is a response. Yeah? It's post-traumatic stress disorder. So there is first a trauma experienced. Why shouldn't we and can't we find a way <laughs> of preventing the trauma rather than finding ways to cure it? So I think, however, that psychedelic experiences also through breathwork and the wider repertoire that I've tried to hint at with these quotes from Marcuse of a wider sensory experiences of sensitivity to the world around us, not so being so radically individualized, um, would actually be a different way of engaging with the world and psychedelic experiences can be part of that. And some clinicians are trying to do that, working with groups, uh, looking into this nature connectedness thing, even if it's quite sad the way they do it. <laughs> I think it doesn't work. Well, there is a start, you know, you can move on from there. I also think that when my generation in the first half of the 60s was very affected by the con uh, uh, con salidomide scandal. And so there was, dr was a the drug prohibition was so easy, partly because drugs, especially for young people, were sort of completely out on many levels. So children didn't get drugs. I see my students being diagnosed with all sorts of illnesses and getting all sorts of drugs. There is, we have a much looser use of drugs that creates massive problems with addiction. Um, but it also enables us to think differently about how we moderate and modulate our way of feeling that does not necessarily have to create addiction psychedelics don't make addicted so there is ways in which we could create different ways of engaging in which psychiatry can be part yeah? if it lets go of some of this rigid epistemology and its misunderstanding of evidence that is currently created 
Yeah, well, I'd say it's early days, of course, you know, with regard to um, seeing practical applications here. And there are also different level, levels, hierarchies of ideals, right? So ideally, you know, you wouldn't need therapy whatsoever. You'd strike at the root. But um, in the case, in my case, with the metaphysics integration, I mean, <clears throat> at the moment, we are see, seeing clinical trials. And they are, you know, when you look at the integrative phase of those, they are quite ambiguous and uh, multivaried and... Um, you know, they're sort of, a. it seems to me a little bit lost, you know, so I think that, you know, on this practical level, um, ideally, if we are to have therapy, if that does exist, psychedelic therapy does exist, I think, you know, um, this can be applied and um, I'm working on that slowly in the background, um, creating a metaphysics manual for this and uh, a few other projects in the pipeline. Um, also, Rene um, Joseph at Exeter University and I and others are working on a metaphysics matrix questionnaire that's been factor analyzed in our forthcoming paper there and uh, further work on that. So that will be not a method of integration, but a method of um, a sort of more comprehensive way of understanding experiences, perhaps. That's on the practical level. But beyond that, I mean, you know, the way I look at things, and I think this, I differ a little bit from Christine here, is that, you know, I see this kind of medicalization framework for psychedelics as um, a passing phase, but one that's necessary. I don't think Christine sees that as quite as necessary as I do. Um, but um, I don't think it's the end goal, though. You know, I think beyond that, you know, psychedelics don't have to be for those who are um, diagnosed as ill. I mean, this is a problematic term, as Christina said. Um, but beyond that, I see, you know, societal uses for it. So, um, you know, in the sort of tradition of Santa Dime, Native American church and whatever, you know, you could have some kind of um, centers, perhaps, which offer this um, not for curing a disease or condition or whatever, but for the enrichment of life enrichment of society generally but like i say early days so who knows but we'll go yeah certainly lots of unknowns but i, I think if, I, if i'm hearing both of you correctly there's a, a another sort of through line is by in thinking about the future having a language and precision with our language to think about what are those futures what are what are our presents and what could our futures be really seems critical um and it seems like both of your works are are touching on that in a in a really engaged way to move to a question um, sort of building on that from um, Thomas in the audience. Um, Thomas is wondering about, uh, really about the credibility of philosophers who have not had themselves a psychedelic experience. Um, and, you know, without any need to out yourselves, um, maybe more generally, is there a value in having a direct experience with a psychedelic to thinking about these philosophical questions? Or is this something that can be done credibly and effectively without having that personal experience? Well, I've 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 added myself many years ago. So I've seen, I've done a lot of these experiences. And I think with certain um, elements of philosophy, like phenomenology, you couldn't possibly do any phenomenology or psychedelic experience without having that phenomenology. So that, that goes without saying. I know the illegal substances are not the only way of inducing this. I did, uh, you know, holotropic breathwork recently and so on. But, um, you know, I think they're quite different experiences. 5-MeO-DMT was, uh, you know, a level beyond that even. You can't possibly talk about the phenomenology of the experience of that without having done it. It's, it seems to me a requisite. You can talk about other elements, so philosophically, you know, the ethics of patenting, cognitive liberty, things like this, of course, without the experience. So it's not, you know, but if you want to get into the sort of uh, more, you know, the mental realms, as it were, I think it is necessary a requisite. Christine, do you have any thoughts on that? Is that something you would agree with? Um... That, that seems quite sound. I mean, one, it's difficult to do a phenomenology of anything you haven't phenomenologically experienced. 
on the other hand, I've been working on genomics and stem cells for 20 years. And nobody actually asked me how many gene tests I had run or how many stem cell lines I had created. Psychedelics is not like that. But on the other hand, it's also not such a disconnected tool because it's about our state of mind. So I, I did mean this seriously when I said we should maybe not see the psychedelic experience as something so radically different from other ways of experiencing the world because we have so many. There isn't one other, yeah? There isn't the normal state of mind and then the psychedelic experience. There is so many ways in which our minds work. Uh, but I think in principle, Peter is right that it helps to have at least done a proper session of holotropic breath work. <laughs> Would be good. <laughs> I'd recommend that. It's entirely legal. <laughs> One thing that Christina and I both always say is, yeah, there's a there's a you know a variety of psychedelic experiences. There's not one that you know there's dose dependent, context dependent, and uh, substance chemically dependent. I think and these are all interesting variables and other variables as well. Probably we don't even realize. And as well, you know, no, what is normal experience? This is a big problem in philosophy mind, and there's no obvious answer to that. So I would see as a spectrum though, you know, variety, variety, which sometimes overlap. If, if I could bring a question that came from our, or came out of our reading group, we were talking about the difference between the experience of knowledge. So in the, in the case of your, your, your chapter on, on Spinoza and 5-MeO-DMT, there seems to be a, a correspondence between what Spinoza lays out as the third kind of knowledge, the intellectual love of God, and the felt experience of 5-MeO-DMT, but it seems, to, at least to my reading of Spinoza, that the experience of knowledge, the experience of an intellectual love of God is not the same thing as true, I cannot think of a better, a better word, true knowledge, true knowledge, true ex, uh, encounter with the intellectual love of God. And so I'm curious, Peter, if you have any thoughts on how do we sort of parse the difference, uh, specifically, so much of our conversation has sort of centered on experience, psychedelic experience. What is the difference, or do you see a difference between the experience of knowledge? You're having a feeling, this sort of passive encounter with, um, a, with a sort of revelatory state versus a true, a true revelation, a true sort of attainment of, of knowledge. Do you see a difference there, or is this uh, insignificant or not part of, your, of, how, of how you're sort of putting 5-MeO-DMT and Spinoza together here? Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a deep question of epistemology, really. Um, so with respect and Spinoza's, Spinoza's scholarship, um, I just say this, that, you know, so Spinoza has three types of knowledge or cognition, um, and it's the second kind, which is generally what we would call knowledge, scientific, rational knowledge, you know, which uses concepts and, and uh, inference. Um, the third kind of now the third kind of knowledge for Spinoza is is uh, you know contested and there's many different interpretations of what it means. Um, but my interpretation, which I think is quite standard from other scholars, is um, that the third kind of knowledge is not um, a represent representational of the object. So we don't represent the object in a certain way. We become the object, and in this case, we become nature. This is the ultimate nature connectedness, the intellectual love of God, because God is nature. Um, and this is interesting. I was reading a De Castro on um, Native American animism uh, again the other day, and and he he argues that there's this um, exchange of perspectives in true shamanistic what he calls shamanistic knowledge, which is um, you don't you 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 truly get to know something by becoming it. You don't represent it. 
and you don't reduce it to your own conceptual framework and so on. So it's very hard to sort of fathom this, but it's somewhat akin to the, I think, the third kind of knowledge in Spinoza, um, becoming the object. And this is ultimately, I suppose, traceable to the classic kind of uh, mystical notion of becoming, you know, the Platonian view of becoming one with the object that he speaks about. Um, so, yeah, but the question then is, you know, how do you, you know, what's the veridicality of that? You know, you might feel it in the Jamesian noetic sense, but um, how, how can you, how can you attain any certainty? Of, and then becomes a question of, well, what is certainty? What gives you certainty? Is it inference? Is it scientific verification? Uh, what's that based on in the first place? You know, so on. So yeah, um, that's not really, that's just an attempt towards an answer, which would make uh, a, a book. And it, it seems, I mean, this perhaps is recourse back to a more religious or theological reading of Spinoza, where um, revelation or a sort of apocalyptic encounter with, with knowledge sort of fits within what Spinoza is describing here as this um, realization of a, a oneness with God or a, a co-identity of matter and, and mind or, or something along those lines. Well, Spinoza uh, himself, which then, it. sorry, uh, go, sorry, go right ahead. Time, time difference. Um, I was just going to add in quickly. I mean, Spinoza himself um, references the third kind of knowledge and the intellectual level of God as its peak with the word glory in the in the sort of Old Testament. You know, so there is that link there from Spinoza himself. And Spinoza is always sort of keen to sort of try to make his views harmonious with um, biblical scholarship, really. Of course, he was the first to begin higher criticism before it became a big thing in Germany, you know, 200 years later. But sorry, I butted into your second, the second part of your question, Paul. Oh, it was uh, more of a comment than a question. I, yeah, I appreciate that, that response. I am wondering if we could turn to the mystical experience questionnaire, which I think sort of hits on something relevant within within both of your your work and your your presentations here. Uh, it seems to have become the common currency for quantifying the mysticality of psychedelic experiences in the research setting. Um, for Peter, do you see, or for, for either of you, but do you see a certain metaphysics being imposed in this questionnaire? Um, and more generally, what do you make of the widespread use of, of the MEQ? Um, well, yeah, as you know, the MEQ is is very much based on um, Walter Stace's book, Philosophy and Mysticism, from 1960. And um, that is, as you are well aware, you know, has its influences from um, a number of sources. And Walter Stace himself was um, had his, you know, was very much a perennialist, you know, so um, as opposed to a contextualist. So he certainly has metaphysical views. And the MEQ stems from that. And I think it's been used by many people like Johns Hopkins, by people who share that perennialist metaphysical view. Um, but also, I mean, I see, um, you know, there's, if you read that book more fully, you know, um, he, he uses, uh, he talks about pantheism, for example, against Spinoza, but um, also he's influenced by um, Vedantism, and Neoplatonism and so on. So there's many different strands. I mean, you know, when he wrote that book, he in the same year 
wrote another book about um, mysticism. I think it was just reports, wasn't it, of, of of mysticism around the world. And and there you see a common core experience. So there's that belief that there's a common core experience, which you know was uh, well, perennialism was coined by Augustino Stucco in the 16th century. I think had political um, political reasons behind it. Um, it was taken on by J- William James Huxley and others like that. Um, so there is that running through, and that's a kind of Western. Well, I shouldn't say Western even, you know, it has sort of non-Western influences, but it it has been a metaphysical belief system um, for a few hundred years. Well, Stuco himself says it comes from, you know, even further back, you know, like the eternal theology, I forgot what he calls it now. But, um, but yeah, there's that common core experience belief coming through states and thus going through the MEQ. And I think it's somewhat limiting. That's why, you know, I think metaphysics is more comprehensive. It includes much more. Like, for example, idealism is not part of that. But you get in 1799, Humphrey Davy taking 200 pounds of nitrous oxide and expressing an idealist perspective. So I think it's just, it's just too limiting, really. And perhaps it is belongs to a certain ideology and thus is a little bit too restrictive. Christina, do you have anything to add on the, uh, the MEQ conundrum here? I mean, it's part of exactly this way in which you direct an experience. So if you have a clinical situation where people get admit, admitted to a, having a, a or two doses of psychedelics after a diagnosis being established as being part of the target group, if it is a clinical trial in particular, then being prompted in some ways of what they might expect. And then afterwards getting a whole bunch of questionnaires to fill in that actually give them a language and imagery with which to describe their experience. That is why I said people may need the space and the time and maybe a discussion with some of their friends to find their language, you know. You can do a lot of work with the prompting and with the interpretation through questionnaires or directly through asking. And actually, so when you ask people, did you encounter, did you have a transcendent experience? Did you feel one with nature? Did you have ego dissolution? These are all such, I mean, (laughs) sociologically speaking, these are such, pre-formatted questions, you know? I mean, if you you can answer them with yes or no, but they put something in your head in the way in which obviously these people who know think how you might want to think about what you have experienced. And if there's anything true about our culture not having a good language, which is where this whole talk about the ineffable from the experience comes from. If there is something that is radically new to you experiencing, and then somebody comes and tells you, did it feel good? Did you feel like riding on a horse? Was it feel like underwater or being drunk or, you know, or flying in between the stars or whatever you throw at somebody, yeah? If you are perceived as the expert and the clinician is the expert, yeah? And you come with these leading questions, you give people words and interpretations on how to see and speak about what they have experienced. And that, I think, is a sort of prompting and control of the process in which you make all these experiences relatively the same, because you give them all this kind of language in which you want them to express what they've experienced so that you can then quantify it. (laughs) And this is why I say the exemplar of the study object is a real issue with this, but also the way in which the experience is somewhat distorted and formatted not through what one oneself experienced or what maybe talking to your friends you might make of this in some wobbly way, 
but something that immediately is pressed into the language of a set of questionnaires and the mysticism one being a particularly problematic in that background because it has so much uh, Christian subtones to it from its whole origins. But also say other parts of it are problematic, like for example, um, like Stephen Katz said in his famous 70s um, paper on contextualism, you know, like um, a word like uh, ineffable is not doesn't really describe an experience. It describes the fact that you can't report an experience. It's not part of the actual content of the experience itself. Or he says, you know, the word unity means something very different in Jewish mysticism as opposed to Zen Buddhism. So again, you know, there's I think generally there's this requirement to um, develop, you know, a much more nuanced, subtle uh, taxonomy of these states, if possible. These states, and maybe maybe there aren't, you know, even repeatable states, really. It's a very complex thing, and it relates to the fact that these uh, cannot be really empirically verified. You know, these are mental states, and one of the sort of key aspects of the mental and philosophy of mind is that it is private, at least partly private, you know. So I can't see your memories of yesterday, for example, where, whereas you would have access to them. And in a way, that sort of makes it, you know... Um, not uh not unscientific but you know beyond the scientific method ultimately and so there's a struggle to bring it in to scientific investigation i mean we don't even know like i said with my thing how mind mind and brain you know the concepts mind and brain relate you know there's just not agreement on that let alone any other kind of exceptional peak 5meo states or whatever yeah, and I think that that um, is is doing a good job at pointing to the question that Lucas had about, you know, how can we even think about these sort of highly speculative concepts and and what what are they doing um, when they're applied to to psychedelics? So maybe actually instead of focusing, that was where I was going to go next, but maybe actually I want to make sure in the last couple of minutes that we get to Andre's question um, here in the chat. And one of the things that the MEQ is doing is it's positively valencing people's experience, a mystical mystical experience is a positive experience in the MEQ's conception. And what Andre's question is about is, is about the opposite of this, is about bad trips, bad mystical experiences, and whether or not we should be, um, as they say, whether or not we should be inclined to interpret such experiences as metaphysically important in the same ways that we do with positive experiences. Um, and maybe, Christina, turning to you first, I'm curious about this idea of the of the dark and the negative, and maybe specifically thinking about it from a non-Euro-centric model are these are those experiences important? What should we make of those experiences? I mean, it's it wouldn't be surprising, would it, that somebody who is ending up in a clinical space in particular, but I guess we all <laughs> have sort of dark parts of things that happen in our life and that are in our minds. Um, so if you want to frame this in a religious language or Christian language or not, but encounters with the devil happen in life. <laughs> and that is not the language I'd normally use, but I don't necessarily see or encounters with death. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what exactly, if psychedelics, and there seems there is a way in which people lose anxiety of death in certain uses of psychedelics when they are uh, threatened by a, a death and severe illness in the near future. So there is a whole treatment protocol that Ivan Bosant and others are studying psychedelics for. If the encounter with death is sort of something that we all should face and philosophers have a great tendency to think indeed we should, then I'm not sure what is often seen as a bad experience 
I mean, it's trivial. Some people say, yeah, every bad trip, if you think about it long enough, becomes a good trip. This is sort of not where I would take this. I mean, at least not in this banality, but there is some truth in this. Right? That it's an encounter with a world inside us and outside that isn't all happy and pink and Barbie. So we know this. This is why we are doing this. So what's so shocking about it? This judgment of bad, is something about the emotional response to it and then knowing where to put it. And this is where help is needed. And where I question whether the clinical help that is on offer is maybe the most helpful. Yeah? There might be other help more helpful for making sense, giving time, making sense with experiences that are ex challenging and that really throw you off, not just for a day or two, or like coming out of the party environment or something, but maybe for four weeks. Yeah? Um, but we shouldn't be too surprised about this because such things happen in our life. Mm. Things that throw us off our path for a year happen in life. They are normal. So I'm not sure to which degree we have to think about this, but it means taking psychedelic experiences seriously. This mm. is an argument for not seeing this as a sort of for our afternoon entertainment because you can't predict the experience and it might take you somewhere where you then need to invest time and care to actually work through something. Wonderful. Well, I, I know we're at time, Peter. I just wanted, if you have a you know, 10, 15, 30 second sort of um, response here, I want to make sure. Um, okay. Well, I mean, there are many different varieties of so bad experiences from anxiety to um, extreme nihilism, death, uh, I just speak about one quickly. I'm very, I, I've had a number of very dark experiences and when I, by which I mean gothic dark, you know, and, but they are at the same time, you know, in one way they're frightening so they can be defined as bad, but in another sense they're beautifully aesthetic and really, you know, fascinating. So you, know, you can value them. Also, I just quickly mention there's this great book called The Falling Sky by David Kopinawa, a Yanomami shaman. And um, he, you know, becoming a shaman is like, you know, almost kills you. I mean, it's, it's, it's as dark as it, it uh, as it becomes, but that's part of that tradition. So um, I think we should be careful of not getting too safety conscious and sort of trying to like you know infantilize and pad everything with kind of um, safety concerns. And uh, you know now, but I always say this: the psychedelics are not for everyone, you know, especially not the higher doses and so on. Um, but it's very context dependent, and I can't say enough in these few seconds. Yeah, no, but perfect. I think that's a great way to end. And, and you know, if there's one thing that philosophy does well, it sort of help tease out what are those contexts and how should we talk about them. So um, on behalf of the CSWR and, and Paul and myself, we're just so grateful to both of you for this time and for your talks. They were, um, as as expected, even, even more enriching and interesting. And I also want to uh, extend a thanks to all of the audience here for the wonderful questions. As mentioned, we will pass those on to both of the speakers. Um, and I also want to thank Lori and the rest of the staff and Professor Stang at the Center for the Study of World Religions for all of their help in making this possible. And of course, to my colleague and friend, Paul Gillis-Smith, for helping today. And as a last note, um, I just want to make everybody aware of our next uh, installment in the Psychedelics and the Future of Religion series, which is titled Mescaline and Psychonauts with Mike J. And that, as the title uh, 
tells will be a conversation with the author, Mike J, on both his new book, Psychonauts, and his fantastic history of the um, psychedelic mescaline. And that talk will be, again, on Zoom. It will be Monday, November 27th from 10 uh, to 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. Um, and more details will be pasted here and will, are also available on the center's website. Um, so again, just thank you so much um, to both of our speakers. Thank you, Paul, and thank you to Lori and everyone else, and have a great rest of your week. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.